0: Hey, it's Francis. You know, there is always going to be a place in my heart for French food. I was trained in it. The heights of the high end are amazing. But what I love most is the simple, old-school, everyday cooking of France. And in this episode from a while back, the legend Jacques Pepin had us in his home to talk about his love of cooking chicken. And my friend Alessandro Croppenzano tells us about the incredibly simple baking Parisians do at home check it out. I'm Francis Lamb and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Hey, I have to tell you, I'm walking on air a little bit. I just got to have a super nice, super chill vacation with my family that ended with us spending a long weekend with friends at their beach house. And, you know, one of these friends is actually a great chef. So, It was literally like, we're coming out of the water, and he goes, Hey, how about a lobster paella for dinner? Anyway, incredible food aside, one of my favorite parts of the weekend was hearing him tell me his stories from his travels in France. Like, you know, when he went to this legendary three star restaurant I'll only ever dream of, and this other legendary restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, I just gotta tell you, I am a sucker for fancy French food. Which brings us to our episode today, which is about. Not fancy French food. We're talking about French home cooking and baking, the everyday stuff, and specifically two of the great staples of French home food, chicken and cake. Alexandre Craposano joins us later in the show to talk about the shockingly simple baking that happens in Parisian homes. And first, man, this is the other reason I'm walking on air. We had a visit in the home of the one and only Jacques Lepin.
1: Hello! Hey, how chef, how are you? Alright, oh, okay. Hi, so nice to see I'm you.
0: Thank you again. for having us.
1: Alright, you're welcome. Right, Gaston.
0: Hi Gaston. Right. How are you today? I'm fine. Like an old man, you know, hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I barely need to introduce the man who was the personal chef of the president of France, who was Julia Child's bestie, who spent 40 years in American TV teaching us about classic French techniques, but... Did you know that in addition to being all those things, he's also a passionate artist? He paints, he sculpts, he hand illustrates every menu of every dinner he's hosted in his home. And he's a new book of paintings, recipes, and stories about chicken. you hear why in a minute. Anyway, Jacques welcomed us into his home, where we not only got to sit with him and his beloved dog Gaston, who you'll hear throughout the interview, we're talking about his book, Art of the Chicken. Have a listen. Chef, it's so great to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you for coming. Uh, It is such an incredible pleasure and uh, to talk about one of your favorite subjects. Chicken, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I love that you wrote a whole book about chicken, and you've made hundreds of artworks uh, through the years about chicken, as you can see in the book. But for readers who'd be surprised, I'm thinking a lot of readers here think uh, chicken is boring, it's ubiquitous. What do you say to them? I say, on the
1: contrary, it's very democratic. I mean, mm. you have a chicken in a truck stop, as well as a three-star restaurant in France. I don't think there is any... I mean, I've been to Africa, I've been to China, I've been to uh, Japan, I've been to Russia, I've been all over the world. There is no place who doesn't cook chicken. Mm-hmm. There is probably probably at least a thousand recipes for chicken that you could find in different parts of the world. You know? So, yes, on the contrary, it's... Something unique in a sense, you know. Yeah. yeah and yeah. eggs, even maybe more so. <laughs> I'm a great lover of eggs. And when we were a kid, we get our protein probably much more from the egg mm-hmm. than from meat, because I mean it was much less expensive and it was available, and especially during the war, and so forth. So yes, eggs for me, are in aspic in summer, or poached,
0: or scramble or in, in omelette. Again, it's very versatile. Yeah you know it's funny again like to live in an age and you know where there's obviously industrialized food and you know these things are now ubiquitous but to talk with people who remember when they weren't and remember when they were special my parents would tell me my father in particular would tell me Growing up in China, it was a special day when they could have an egg, even, yeah. you know, and on your birthday, famously, like their version of, I used to walk uphill two miles every day to go to school, you know, like their version was I would have an egg on my birthday to go right. with my rice. Yeah. yeah, I did walk to school too. Yeah. I mean, in the morning,
1: coming back for lunch, going back in the afternoon, coming back after four times a day, yeah. about
0: a mile and a half, so we didn't have to go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> Good cardio. It's good cardio. Well, let me ask you about something interesting you wrote in the book, which is that to the French, the chicken is like their bald eagle. Uh, it's a symbol of courage against, right. you know, the symbol of Prussia was, was the eagle, right? So the symbol right. of France was the chicken and to stand up against them. What's the meaning of that? Is it coincidental that it's featured so much in the cuisine?
1: Well, yes. I mean, you go back to uh, Henry IV in you know, the 16th century, who said that everyone. Every family should have a, a pot with a chicken on Sunday. And I happened to, to be born in an area of France where we considered maybe that we have the greatest chicken, the poulet de Bresse, you know, B-R-E-S-S-E. Yeah. And uh, so for me, certainly when I was an apprentice in Bourg-en-Bresse, in you know, the center of that, the chicken was the main, whether it was served even cold in salad or poached, or in cream, or with morel or roasted, uh, there was chicken on all menus, you it's know,
0: so. <laughs> hey, bud. Yes, oh, and of see. course the eggs come with it. Tell us about the chicken of breasts. Describe it, why, and why is it so unique? Why is it well, only that place it's a beautiful uh, you white chicken with uh,
1: with a red cock and blue feet. So, bleu, blanc, rouge, it's the color of the French flag to South mm. <laughs> so. Well, it's, it's, a, you know, it's an organic chicken. You go in the farm there and you see those bunch of chicken and they have kind of little house where they stay at night and those houses don't roller. And so by the time they finish eating all there is to be around every two or three days, they move that thing 100 or 200 feet. So they keep going and uh, usually the cow come first so that then they, have, uh, they can pick up into the cow manure and the stuff too, so there's a cycle. You know, working with that, which um, I don't know whether people, it's interesting now because a few years ago with my friend Jean-Claude, we raised chicken, he raised chicken too. We had those chickens for the kid, and the kids are not used to that chicken. First, it's a bit tougher, it mm-hmm. gets more juicy, the meat is more attached to the bone, it's more assertive in taste. Mm-hmm. And people who are used to, you know, supermarket chicken to a point say, ooh, that thing is or whatever. Oh, interesting. You know, so you get conditioned also to, uh, you to
0: know, what your chicken is uh, yeah. 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 It is true that when you get like supermarket chickens, you know, they're red mainly for the size of their breast, right? Uh-huh. Like, because people love chicken breasts, but also like the thighs, which, you know, I love a tender thigh, but they become so soft when you cook them. Right. That's yeah, a, I mean,
1: for me, I like the, the, the leg. I mean, in the family, we do any type of chicken. Everyone fight for the dark meat yeah, yeah. before we go further than the white man. But uh, question of taste. Uh, and the skin, which I always use. I mean, uh, uh, very often, many recipes remove the skin. So I remove the skin, put it flat on a skillet, a dash of salt, and uh, cook it in the oven, like 350 for like 20 minutes, and a uh, beautiful crackling me, better than the bacon and so forth, yeah, to crumble on top of salad or, or different things, and, and the fat coming out of it, was certainly when I, was, when I was an apprentice, that chicken fat was more precious than butter. I mean, it was mm-hmm. kept to sauté potatoes, to do all kind of things, to put in pate. It withstands very high temperature too, so that's good. So all of that was certainly used, you know. But basically, I, uh, you know, I was married for. Uh, 54 years, mm-hmm. and I have 12 books of menus that I've done you know, since I was married. When people came to the house, I wrote the menus, and so forth, and I realized that I was illustrating it with a uh, fair amount of chickens, and uh, actually included my daughter. She's mid 15 now, she came a few weeks ago, and she said, see, what did I eat for my third birthday? I said, okay, let's look. We look, we find our third birthday, and she actually drew chicken. There. <laughs> so, you know, those books are uh, my whole life, in a sense, you know, a yeah. uh, book of memory. And, uh, and it's associated with uh, chicken or eggs in, in many ways. So, yeah. so that's how it started for me to pan chicken. So I wanted to do uh, that book of chicken, but panning and drawing and so forth. They say, great, but we want recipe with it. I say, I don't want to do recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a book, uh, you may have seen, called The Apprentice. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's the story of my life, I kind of cooked memoir. So I did it in the same I way. It. I said, okay, I'll tell you a story about uh, chicken or about eggs and all that. And uh, there will be a recipe, but in a narrative form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some feasible, some probably not feasible, too. And it's interesting because at some point, my the publisher there, or my editor there said, you know, could we get a little more ingredient and this <laughs> I said, that's not that what it is about. She said, well, so I said, all right, fine. So I send her the chicken from La mer Boisier in France. Again from Lyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lyon was very well known for those formidable woman chefs. Yeah. And La Mer Boisier in the 40s was a three-star restaurant. So the three on the Michelin really topped up. Yeah. Yeah, this is where uh, even Bocuse, Paul Bocuse, I guess, yeah. did his apprenticeship. You know, so yeah. uh, So she was very well known for the chicken in the pig's bladder. So the chicken with a poulet de brice, mm-hmm. you know, with truffle under the skin, put it in an inflated pig's bladder with a carrot, an onion, and a leek. And it's poached very slowly. And so it's extremely simple, but very sophisticated in other ways. So it brought to the table, all inflated, you know, and then, then they open it and remove the chicken, reduce the juice with some butter, and just serve it straight like this. So I said, okay, I'll give you a recipe. One pig's bladder, one <laughs> poulet <pillowed> breast, very <laughs> powerful. So she said, what is this? I said, you want a crazy
0: As an editor, my heart sinks listening to that story, but as a listener, I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. No, I love that. But I do love, you know, it's funny because, you know, obviously you said you've written over 30 cookbooks from the very classic ones, La Technique, to ones more modern and, and more sort of um, specific in their, yeah. in their subject. And I loved your memoir, The Apprentice. And I -hmm. love this book especially because it does feel like a different take on your life stories. Mm -hmm. There is so much storytelling. And I actually love the recipes in it because... So the way the recipes are written, it's not one chicken, two pounds of onions. Mm -hmm. It's just as if you were telling Mm -hmm. a friend, oh, this is how I make that dish. Exactly.
1: And some of them are quite simple recipes. So explain that to a friend... That's probably feasible, you know. Yeah. And it gives you some uh, leeway about your own taste, putting more of
0: this, less of that, so that's yeah, 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 yeah.
1: more suited to your own taste, you know? So, yeah,
0: I love that. Jacques Pepin's latest book is Art of the Chicken. We'll have more with him in just a minute. We're headed to the stove. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from 8 p.m. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bimonthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. This week, we're in the home of the icon Jacques Pepin, and talking with him about the avian symbol of France... The subject of his new book, Art of the Chicken. We're going to do some cooking with him. Um, there's a dish in there that you described, chicken with tarragon. And this was a dish I think you said you made as an apprentice or while you were training, and you watched the chef cook it. And something you noted in there was when he was browning the chicken. So it was a, a, a braise, and you, the oh, yeah, yeah. you the, brown the chicken first before you put it in the... But the technique was you brown it very lightly... Yeah. Until you say oblong, so like so it's still blonde, white. So you're yes. not really browning it. So oblong, t- you're right. Yes. I thought that was so interesting because I was trained when you're browning something, always brown it until it's deep brown, because that's how you get the most flavor. So I love the idea of the nuance and the sophistication of like, right. well, you can have a different gradation of flavor. So tell me about of course. browning oblong and when you would use that.
1: Yeah, we do that for certain types of stew. It produced something a bit different, more delicate. I mean, the chicken, there we used, we of course never removed the skin. And it was sauteed on a relatively low temperature with butter. A blanc, that is, uh, it had a beige color in the browning. And it would cook for uh, 12, 12, 15 minutes slowly like that mm, to get to that slowly. color. And uh, extract some juice from the chicken, and eventually that was delayed with, uh, a bit of uh, white wine and uh, a bit of stock. There was an onion or a piece of leek in it, too, and cooked this way, and then eventually finish with a bit of beurre manier, we call you know, and uh, the fresh cream from the area and uh, and tarragon. You know, that was, again, one of the specialties of my apprenticeship, relatively simple. I think I remember doing that when I
0: was uh, about 15 or 14 and a half <laughs> <laughs> it's been a minute. It's yes. been a minute. So the idea then is... So the browning isn't to create brown, caramelized flavor. Right. It's to extract some of the juice, concentrate the juice, but right. still keep a light color and keep a light flavor.
1: Yes, and it's interesting because uh, the degree at which you brown it, then it will differentiate the sauce, not only in color, but in
0: taste. Yeah. Right. yeah. Speaking of other light dishes... <laughs> so I love canel, pie, canel. Oh. And so Pike canel... Um, are typically, I guess you could say, sort of like a, a poached mousse. It's uh, fish pureed with cream and egg white. Sometimes, but just in the style of
1: Escoffier, and yeah. uh, the quenelle Escoffier, which is like a mousse. But the cannel de Lyon, where I come from, are different. They are done like a, with a pâte à choux. yeah, yeah, And that's done with milk or water, yeah, yeah. and then the flour and butter to make that paste. And eventually you add eggs to it. And then we add that, we mix that with a puree of fish. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. at that time, even when I was an apprentice, with the fat of uh, the, the, the pork kidney fat mm, in yeah. Paris after we did it with butter instead of that. But I mean, so the Cunelle Lyonnaise are done differently than the Cunelle Escoffier, which is more like a mousse, you
0: know, with the cream and uh, stuff. So. Yeah, but either way, it's a, it's a, a it's very light it. fish mousse that you e- poach. Exactly, yeah. And then serve right. in this beautiful sort of creamy sauce. Is. You have a recipe for doing it with chicken. Is that, like, sacrilegious?
1: <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, the mousse of chicken, you know, is done this way. We used to do it in small kennels like that, in uh, in a cream puff uh, type of shell, uh, in, a, in a puff paste type of shell, mm-hmm. rather. And then you'll have uh, the chicken in there, and then you have the unborn egg of the chicken, and the and wattle, and all uh, mm-hmm. that was part of the dish. With truffle, of course, and then reduction of madeira and... Uh, Truffle and cognac, so I mean, pretty expensive, uh, <laughs> fancy dish called financière. It's supposed to relate to the, the finance because people, finance, could, afford people could afford it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there's truffle and Madeira, all these expensive ingredients, but it's also a coxcomb, which, you know, you wouldn't even... Yes, the, the coxcomb
1: was, you know, common using it. I remember we used to rub them with salt and uh, to, to remove a kind of... Uh, Take sure that they have on top and put them in uh, in water overnight, like we did the marrow of bone, you know, mm-hmm. to extract any type of color. So it was totally white, no more blood yeah. in it. And then it was poached and the wattle too. And uh, as I said, we used to get those unborn eggs inside, also to kill the chicken, and those were poached and added to it. Uh, yeah, th- those were not particularly special. When I work at the Meurice in Paris, or the Plaza Altenay, that was um, the mid-50s, you know.
0: You'd have to go far and wide here to search in a store oh, to yeah. find Costco and waddle. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, but I, I love this, because what you're talking about really is, even in a very high-end dish, in a very expensive dish, it's still so connected to the root of the the fact of the animal, right? It's so connected to the nature of it. It's so connected to where all parts of the animal are. Not only that, but
1: to the economy, you know, and you find that in any part of the world, you know, I remember in Africa, too, I mean, you don't throw, I mean, the blood, you know, you use the blood to do a sanghet. We do blood sausage in France with other type of blood, but this one I remember in breakfast, a friend of mine in in Dakar, in Senegal. So in, in breakfast in the morning, then she would have some onion to sauté, and then she put the blood mm-hmm. of the chicken, killed the day before, to coagulate, and like a blood sausage. A lot of, you had yeah, a lot yeah, of seasoning, hot yeah. pepper, and that was done with eggs, with a poached egg or whatever. So, yeah, that was used. I mean, the classic cocova you know, you use the blood as a thickening agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything was used. Yeah. And that was relatively common. You know, there is something to be said about that type of cooking where everything is used as opposed to the type of waste that we do.
0: Yeah. And you, you know, we've talked a lot about chicken now, but you love eggs as much as you love chicken. Yes, probably,
1: even maybe more than chicken, even. So
0: So when I was a cook, I was obsessed with learning how to make a perfect French omelet. And, of course, you famously have demonstrated that for millions of people. When you mastered that, like, was there anything else you had to do next, or were you just done?
1: No, I Was mean, you know, challenge? I don't think that uh, I do at least four type of omelette. You know, my mother would never have done a classic French omelette. She would, she does where the, the curl are larger, different, just like you have in the cafeteria here, mm. and it's very good. And sometimes I'm in the mood for that type of omelette. Other time I may be in the mood for a frittata, you know, more of a Spanish or, or Italian style with potato. Certainly, when I worked in Paris in the eighties, when I, you know, I used to work my day off at other restaurants. I probably work over 100 restaurants in Paris. That's what I used to do to make some money. And uh, usually when you get into the kitchen, the chef tell you, make an omelette. You know, that was a test yeah. of uh, technique. But uh, yes, I mean, we do eggs. For example, egg in Aspic. You know, we do an aspic with chicken stock usually that is flavored with tarragon and the eggs is embedded in this. Mm-hmm. It's a very classic dish in any restaurant, I mean, in France or summer. So and usually you put a little bit of that aspic into a little souffle mold or so and it's solidified and you decorate it with tarragon on top. Then you put your poached fill it up with the rest of the aspic and then after unmold it to serve it this way. And I think I read that story in there. <laughs> One time uh, I did that with... Uh, friend of my wife Gloria and that guy was a very very wealthy person with a big house with his own helicopter and so forth. And he had invited out for the weekend. So uh, Gloria, you know, volunteered me to cook. So I, uh, beautiful kitchen, I get there but I realized I, mean, I couldn't even find a skillet. I went out to buy a skillet and it was summer and I did some aspic. So I brought that aspic, which was beautiful. I said, I'll pour some eggs with it aspic. Which is what I did, and the man told me we I eat at the Pavillon, I eat, you know, at the caravel in New York, so all the big restaurants. We were very sophisticated. Well, when we served those eggs in Aspic, I knew that they never had that. But the <laughs> only one that was important was the boy. There, a boy, a boy was about ten years old, and he looked at those eggs and he said, "Mom, th- this is cold eggs in jello-like. <laughs> it's <laughs> disgusting." <laughs> Or the kid, you know, the kids are a very good tester. You know, it's good or it's no good. I mean there is no no way of being either polite or nice. The so kid will <laughs> tell you what they think.
0: Okay, well Chef, you have invited us also to taste one of your mother's egg specialties. Right.
1: I called them egg Jeanette, she used to do that when uh, we were kids. So this she used to cook their eggs, outcooked cooked eggs, cut them in half, remove the yolk and mash it up with a lot of garlic and parsley, and then maybe a couple of tablespoons of milk to make it more creamy. Mm-hmm. Then stuff it back into the eggs, and saute it stuffed side down, you know, in a skillet with a little bit of butter so it brown beautifully. And a little bit of the stuffing was already left over, which you add to French mustard and some oil. Uh, usually they use peanut oil when they were a the kid. I use more olive oil now, and that was the mustard sauce served with it. So that's very simple stuff, but it's quite good.
0: Shall we go to the stove?
1: Yes, we can do that. All right. So those uh, are hard-cooked eggs, and it's from my friend... Natalia, who lives next door, she is uh, from Jamaica, mm-hmm. beautiful woman, and she has uh, chicken and duck and a little pig, she has all those there. I had chicken for a while, yeah, but uh, it was too much to take care of, and, uh, you know, with the raccoon, trying to oh,
0: yeah, eat them. Uh, it's one thing to to be in love with nature, it's another thing I have to deal with it. <laughs>
1: So uh, I get those eggs from her, and uh, certainly they are, you know, great quality. Yeah, they look beautiful.
0: Really nice orange color in the yolk. Yes, and uh, you get one of those. And so you've hard cooked these, but the yolk is still slightly jammy. Yes,
1: I cook those nine minutes in boiling water. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes the yolk come out better than that, but... Yeah. It's important, you know, uh, just the boiling of one egg. I remember 1976, I believe, one of the first time I went to California. Mm-hmm. I went to have dinner at uh, Alice Water with James Beard and uh, Marianne Cunningham mm. you know, many years ago. And uh, she had up on just not too long before, and actually Jeremiah Taro was the chef. In
0: 1976, you said? Yes. So Chef, and you said it was only open a, a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah,
1: just uh, open. And I remember I had hard-cooked eggs, and it was perfect. And that was impressive to me, because most of the time you had that green tinge around the yolk, and that mm-hmm. smell of sulfur. And uh, so just doing an egg properly is... Uh, an indication of someone who knows the quality of an ingredient. Yeah. And uh, the idea there is to well, there's a different way of cooking it but for me, I put it in boiling water and uh, come back to barely a boil and cook it like on a very low boil because if you go too high it tends to toughen uh, the albumin mm-hmm. if yeah. it boil too much. So uh, you cook it for about eight, ten minutes, depending how you want it. And but the idea there, when you put the eggs in the, in boiling water like that, the sulfur in the eggs, um, oh, yeah. maybe another one, the sulfur in the egg get away from the the heat and go into around the yolk, mm-hmm. and uh, it has a physical reaction with the iron and make that blue. That green tinge, that's smell of sulfur. Yeah. So as soon as the egg is cooked, if you put it into ice-cold water, then that sulfur that is comes out and dissipates in the water. Oh, and okay. that's why it's going to be white and there is no grain around and so forth. Oh, so, well. I have a little bit of uh, parsley from the garden here. I have a lot of tomatoes in my garden. I don't know. You can look at the window here, you
0: see yeah, it's the a time for it. Yeah. So you have five eggs hard boiled. You've scooped the yolks out. Yep. You have a a fat clove of garlic in the food processor with a small yeah. handful of my, parsley. My mother wouldn't have the food processor. <laughs> 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 Make my life easier. Okay, so now the egg yolks go into the food processor with the yeah. parsley and garlic. Yeah, a dash of salt and a dash of pepper. Salt and pepper. Yeah. Get that ASMR.
1: All right. And as you can see, it's a bit crumbly here, so mm-hmm. my mother would put probably a couple of tablespoons of milk. Mm. Give me milk in the refrigerator here. Yes,
0: So, so these are, I mean, these are basically French deviled eggs. That's what you're making. Yes, but unlike deviled eggs, you're stuffing them. You're not mounding them up. You're filling. You're just no, filling just the indentation. Yeah, and flattening it up. And you want to keep some
1: of the stuffing to do the sauce anyway. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, my wife loved those eggs, so she decided we had a party. She decided to do it with square eggs.
0: She woke like three dozen of quail eggs. She said, I'll never do that again. (laughs) You know what would make this more fun if I did this with eggs the size of a marble? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so the eggs are filled. A dash of oil. Heating a pan with some very beautiful olive oil. It's a gorgeous color. And uh, we'll do the sauce. Okay, so there's mustard. a little bit of that stuffing left. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> Finding a spoon to here. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Spoon for the mustard.
1: Yeah, a good, a good tablespoon of mustard, I would say. Yeah. Now you put them, you know, stuff side down. We only cook them on one side anyway. hmm
0: so just to get some color, a little sear on the, yeah. the stuff side. I'm good. Okay, so back to the sauce, a little bit of the leftover stuffing. Yeah. Probably two or three tablespoons there still. A tablespoon yeah. of mustard. A tablespoon or two of oil. Yeah, that oil and probably a little bit of water. And you just whisk it together. And so the oil will actually still emulsify with the egg yolk, even though it's cooked. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It still emulsifies. And even easier, it looks like. Yeah.
1: Maybe a dash more water. Maybe vinegar. A little bit of vinegar here. Good. What do you think? You want to taste it? Sure. A little more salt, maybe? Yeah, I'm going to put a extra of salt. Maybe a
0: little more vinegar.
1: Okay. Oh, nice color on those eggs. Yeah, and they are not cooked on the other side. You just do it on,
0: <clears throat> on one
1: side. Good. What do you think? Well, if you like it, I like, like it. it. <laughs> I'll do a tiny yeah. bit more salt. All right. Okay, so usually yeah I would spread the
0: the sauce in the last thing like this. Very pretty. So just pull that sauce on the plate. Oh, I love that. You yeah. shake the plate and the sauce evens around, evens out. You got these beautiful seared boiled eggs. Yeah.
1: Pretty simple and easy to do. Oh, I love it. And this is the egg Janet. Beautiful. Like for my
0: mother. She'd be happy with that. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad. Let's go for a taste. All right. Beautiful, Beautiful. thank you. Sauce is delicious.
1: You're right. I should have put a little more salt in the mixture inside.
0: Oh, it's so nice, though. But good thing. You add more salt in the sauce, so that's good. I love how the browning just gives it a little bit of warmth. Yeah. And the egg is so tender and soft. Yes. how smooth that filling is. Banana? Yes, mom. Okay. <laughs> well, this is delicious. Thank you to your mother. Yeah, thank you too. Thank you for coming. Oh, well, thank you, chef. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Jacques Pepin's latest book is Art of the Chicken. You can find a recipe for his pan-crisp devil eggs at splendidtable.org. And coming up... You get to have dessert. Alexandra Crapanzano, author of Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes, talks about how Parisians bake at home. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild caught products are flash frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. Acidica Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. Alexandra Crapanzano has written cookbooks about some of her favorite cities in the world, London and L.A., but when it comes to the city she partially grew up in, Paris, she honed it in a bit. Her newest book is called Gâteau. It's not about all the great food of Paris. It's specifically about the amazing and amazingly simple cakes of Paris. Look, I didn't believe that either, but have a listen, and I guarantee you're going to fire up your oven after this. So, hey, Alexandra.
2: Hi, Francis.
0: It's so great to see you. I, you know, I, I'm i so into this book, but, you know, it's a little funny because, how do I say this? The words simplicity and French cakes are usually not seen together ever, let alone in the subtitle of a cookbook. So I was kind of blown away when I realized that you were serious about that idea. So tell us about it.
2: You know, it's something that I actually only realized kind of recently, because, you know, when you when you've started cooking early, and you've been making stuff all of your life, you know, you don't really think about the stuff that you make every day, you don't really examine like, is is this actually really simple? Or is it not? And you know, I really wanted to demystify this idea that either the French have this kind of genetic superpower and are born knowing how to make mille and can come back after a ten-hour day at work and whip up a, a perfect, you know, mille or macaron or, or some incredibly yeah. complex cake. Um, <laughs> and I also wanted to demystify this idea that they just go to pâtisseries and shop. And of course, they do that too. But the thing is, is that the French are really, really Frugal and really practical at heart. Hmm. And I think that we tend to think of practicality and frugality as being, you know, the opposite of indulgent and bon vivant. And we think of it as austerity. But in fact, you know, I think the French really believe that if you cook well and you bake well with simple recipes that are tried and true, you can cook deliciously every night. And, you know, when I go to Paris and I see my friends, they will. They'll bake a yogurt cake, it'll take them 10 minutes, or maybe they'll put together a chocolate cake that takes, you know, 11 minutes to make. Uh, And it's all really, really delicious. And it kind of, it's something you can do every night instead of as a special occasion. And I think in that simplicity, they're kind of also very modern, even though some of the recipes date back to the Middle Ages.
0: That's so interesting. Well, you actually grew up in Paris as well. So, do you remember this kind of baking oh, with your friends and family? Absolutely,
2: going to kids' houses as a teenager, there'd be some really simple cake on the counter, or it'd be, something would be whipped up before dinner, or you know, taken on the on a train on the weekend. Again, I didn't think about it as much when I was a child, but then when I you know, when I hit my 20s and 30s, and then when I had a child and a job, and so did my friends, and I was going to dinner at their house, and suddenly they were actually also (laughs) making these cakes that their parents had been making. Um, There's not a lot of pre-planning to any of these cakes.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah.
2: Right? Besides maybe having butter at room temperature and eggs at room temperature, which the French pretty much do anyway, this is the kind of stuff you can come back after work and make in 10 minutes using pantry ingredients, but they they will really riff on on the classics. Mm. So, you know, maybe you're going to brush something with a little bit of Grand Marnier or a little bit of honey or, you know, slice a cake in half and put in a little jam or, you know, maybe pour on a little ganache to a cake right before serving.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that in the book too. There's so many like, oh, here's the very basic simple recipe and here's different ways you can flavor it, different things you can put on it, in it. And it's, it seems so casual.
2: Yeah. You know, to me, if you really, if you really, really learn the basics and you know what you're doing, then the rest is super easy. You know, there's so much more pleasure in doing something yeah. that, you know, you know how to do. And then you have the total freedom to, you know, maybe you want to add a little Ras al to the Moroccan spice mix, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even a little bit of Baharat, the Egyptian spice mix, or... You know, steep a little bit of um, macrot lime leaves uh, in a sugar syrup and add that, or maybe you want to infuse a simple pound cake with yuzu juice. You know, there's there's so much that you can do. People, this this is a really boozy book, I will say. <laughs> one of, one of the other things I learned about the the French is that you know, in their pantry actually are usually several bottles of spirits or liqueurs, and those get added to kind of very quickly and, like and practically cakes. elevate yeah. a dish or a cake so that if you're if you're baking a basic cake and you add, you know, two teaspoons or two tablespoons of, of an armagnac or a calvados or a cognac or a, a creme de framboise, suddenly, you know, a very simple cake suddenly gets a, a kind of sophisticated adult dimension to it mm-hmm. um, for very little effort. And and also practically I noticed that the French, you know, they have obviously the produce is pretty incredible throughout France. But, you know, every once in a while we all come home with, you know, a bag of apricots that don't really have that great apricot essence that we love. And so they will, they'll just add a little bit of, of a apricot liqueur or, mm. you know, um, they'll boost the flavor of hazelnuts with a hazelnut liqueur or it's, it's kind of... Um, you know, it's it sounds expensive to have all of these liquors, but in fact, they last for years and they, you know, they do in a very simple cake, they will elevate something to that next level.
0: Yeah. So actually, let's start with one of these cakes. Um, the most basic, the yogurt cake you mentioned, this is one that kids literally learn how to bake and Preschool or kindergarten?
2: They do. Tell it's, us about it. It's great. It's like, it's the simplest cake in the world, and it requires, you know, the yogurt jars in France are, they're roughly half a cup in volume. Okay. And you'll look in the window of a maternelle, a nursery school, and you'll see kids, and they'll have a little yogurt jar, and they'll have a mixing bowl and a whisk and then just a loaf pan. And they will literally, you kind of you empty the yogurt <laughs> into the bowl, and then you use it to measure, the, you know, the sugar. And they add oil and um, and the flour and then you add, you know, two eggs.
0: And that's it. That's the cake batter.
2: That is the cake batter. I mean, mm-hmm. it is it is that simple. And they will, you know, you'll use that recipe throughout your life in the way that I think for us, maybe we build tall house cookies all of our life, right? I mean, sure, it's sure. kind of that iconic a recipe, except that I think it, you know, dates back a couple hundred years or whatever. And then they will just dress it up. So I have a recipe that I... I call basically like a yogurt cake for dinner parties, which is that basic yogurt cake. But but I do a, a kind of simple syrup of... Uh, a little grand marinier, a little bit of orange zest, a little bit of sugar, and I brush that over the yogurt cake and then kind of and this is done so often in in France and for practical and delicious reasons but i'll I'll add a little bit of a warmed apricot jam almost as a as mm. a thin glaze, and it makes the cake glisten, but I realize it also obviously must hold the moisture and yogurt oh, cakes so cool. are moist, so they'll stay moist for a couple days. But recently I made one with a little bit of, um, of limoncello, which is something I don't like to drink, but I actually love in baking because it's that really intense Italian lemony flavor and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some rosemary. And uh, and it was just, it was delicious.
0: Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> and all the ways you talked about before, maybe like adding a spice blend or adding a shot or two of a liquor that you like. That's the batter. You can dress it up or down however you want.
2: And it's because really the structures of these cakes are really sound. They're really what the French call enrâtables, which means foolproof. So they can take, you know, a diced apple, a diced pear, a handful of berries... Even some chocolate chips tossed in a little bit of flour, some nuts. They can take uh, a little orange blossom water, rose water, some minced lavender. It's kind of great. You can just, you, you know that the structure of that cake is there and it's going to hold. And then whatever you add to it is, is just fun.
0: Yeah, that's super. There's another um, recipe in here that looks super simple, but crazy delicious called fondant Balois. Tell us what that is
2: but I love Francis that you have gone immediately for like the sweetest richest most chocolatey yeah. cake in the book. I mean there's a lot of chocolate in this book. I will say the French the French really love their chocolate and and Parisians really love their chocolate. So I have a big chapter in the book on chocolate cakes and then I I looked and I realized I have chocolate cakes in almost every chapter. But to me that kind of reflects Paris because you can walk two blocks in paris and you'll hit an incredible chocolate shop and then you'll walk another two blocks and there'll be another one i mean they it's it it is a city of chocolate but this fondant um balois is is a great cake and in this case a fondant really refers to a a cake that is molten almost to the point of being pudding like Mm. so it's very moist particularly in the interior and when you you bake it you actually still want it to to kind of move a little bit when you uh Take it out of the oven. And then it's put in the fridge overnight so that you actually do get enough solidity that you can slice it. <laughs> and it's still, oh, cool. it still tastes like it is it is molten. But it's such a simple recipe. You're melting chocolate and butter in a bain marie. You're removing it from heat. And then you really whisk. You whisk three eggs And brown sugar, which adds just a little bit of depth, of course, a tiny bit of salt, because the French love to use salt in in their desserts just to bloom the flavors a little bit. And, you know, and the trick to a recipe like this, which doesn't use Mm -hmm. baking powder or baking soda, it uses the eggs to provide lift, is you want to really beat those eggs for about five minutes until you get a nice kind of pale, voluminous um, Mm -hmm, mass. mm -hmm. And then you just add the tiniest amount of flour. You add three tablespoons of flour. Fold that in and you fold in the melted chocolate butter and pour it into a pan. And 25 minutes later, you pull it out and it's going to be a little wobbly. Bring it to room temperature, cover it super tightly, and then refrigerate it overnight. And then when you bring it back to room temperature or almost room temperature, kind of serve it a little bit chill the next day, it will still taste molten, but it will you can actually slice it with a knife and and serve mm-hmm. it so it doesn't just kind of plop down on your plate. Which <laughs> oh, so and there's nothing wrong with things that plop down on your plate either.
0: <laughs> Especially if they're chocolate. Yeah.
2: Especially chocolate. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I do too.
0: Let's, I think we'll have time for one more. I mean, I know there are like hundreds of cakes in this book, but um, let's do one more. There's something you call the classic apple cake.
2: I love that. So the French don't reach for cinnamon and vanilla the way that mm. I think we do in the States. Sure, and yeah. um, and so their apple cakes tend to really taste like apple cakes, which is interesting. And I think, you know, once I started actually removing those ingredients from particularly fall baking, I realized that the real purity of the flavors was coming out. And in this case, you know, the... the there are two classic apple cakes, um, and again, I think this is a little bit regional. One is one is from Normandy, and as you might imagine, it has a lot of calvados, the Norman apple brandy mm-hmm. in it, yeah, yeah. and just a ton of apples, and um, and almost to the point where you, you wonder if the structure is going to hold, but it really does. And then the other classic apple cake is one that you, you can serve and often do serve with um, some rum raisins in the batter, and then just mm. a light glaze as well of a little bit of rum and sugar. And it's delicious. And again, no cinnamon, no vanilla, just kind of pure apple taste. And then, you know, that contrasts with the um, these deliciously plump raisins, um, which, which have been uh, sitting in rum for a tiny bit of time. And... It's a loaf cake. You you know you chop up the apples. You add them to the batter. There's very very little fuss. Uh, mm-hmm. It's absolutely delicious. It can be made all year because you can make it with pears. You can you can take any of these recipes almost and kind of switch the fruit around, yeah. Which is nice. Um, but the French actually do they bake with a lot of rum. That was one thing I noticed. They use rum almost as much as we use vanilla. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: You know, I again like they're so many hundreds of cakes here and over and over again I'm hearing you talk about, well, booze, but <laughs> also this idea of simplicity, this idea of the flavor being pure. You know, These are not the kinds of cakes that are meant to have 25 different flavors and layers and fillings. It's really just, it's an apple cake. You want to taste apple. You want to taste butter, a little bit of sugar. And it's so funny because I hear so many chefs talk about, you know, very high-level chefs talk about Really want to focus on simplicity and really want to focus on purity of flavor of the ingredients and um, it 's not the home cook kitchen it 's the super high end restaurant kitchen where things are inevitably super complex and take twenty five people to make or whatever yes, but that philosophy seemed the same and i 'm thinking about this because talking to Jacques Papin, he talks about how chicken to him is like the national symbol of France <laughs> and that 's yes. why he loves the cook chicken right and, and What do you think cake means to the culture of France?
2: Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think the French are very ritualistic, so I would say that I'd have to take that into two different categories. One is there are the cakes, like the bouche de Noël at Christmas, which Mm -hmm. is just you know, unessential. It is so tied in everybody's mind to Christmas that, you know, come December, you can walk down the street and all the different patisseries will show their different models of their Boucher Noël. And that that to me is probably if there were one cake, for example, that really, you know, was French in the way, in the way that I guess the chicken represents France mm-hmm. also, I would say it would have to be that. And then the other thing would certainly be really that little something sweet. You know, the French are are not super indulgent, but they do indulge every day. And I Mm. think that for them, you know, being able to make a simple cake that you can nibble on all week, and just when you want that little bite of something sweet, it's there. That to me is kind of that French home cake. It means family, it means after school, it means, you know, beach totes and picnic baskets and long train rides and plane rides (laughs) and, you know, all of that. Um and then I would say you know this is definitely not what the, what cake means to the French but you know cake is not necessarily sweet in France either. Mm. So when the French talk about they actually use the word cake um they mean anything that is a loaf cake that's basically shaped like a loaf cake and they make a lot of savory cakes. So if you open up a kid's lunchbox you might find a croque monsieur cake which is essentially like a ham and cheese sandwich
0: baked into a loaf. Yeah,
2: baked yeah. into a loaf. Um so I think for them, it's not something that is necessarily at all just for birthdays or, mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. or for particular celebrations. It's kind of an everyday small indulgence. And I love that. Yeah.
0: What a nice way to live.
2: It's a great way to live. <laughs> um, and again, I think it is this idea of, of proportion, that you don't, you know, because you're having something every day, when you do it's really about just having a little peace because you know you know you're going to have great food the next day also i love that you know i love that there's a confidence the french have that that they really will eat well every single day and so they eat you know somewhat judiciously but but with a great kind of confident pleasure and it not being their last <laughs> their last great meal
0: Oh, I love that. Well, thanks so much, Alexandra. This is so fun.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Alexandra Crapanzano is author of Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. You can find a version of that preschool yogurt cake recipe on our website. Check out the almond yogurt cake at splendidtable.org. Your a preschooler can make it. I mean, I can even make it. Anyway, that's our show. Go bake a cake, and we'll talk to you next week. Our show is made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, and managing producer Sally Swift. James Napoli is our digital producer, and special thanks to Gary O'Keefe for recording us at Jock's House. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb and this is APM, American Public Media.